Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Abram Muscarden, a Class of 2022 Emerson Collective Fellow. Abram is a senior reporter at ProPublica and a regular contributor to the New York Times Magazine. He's working on a book about how climate change will force a great global migration and a demographic reorganization of the United States. In 2015, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his work about water scarcity and the Colorado River. He's a recipient of the George Polk Award and the Overseas Press Club Award, among others, for his reporting on the environment. So, Abram, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. So to start us off, can you tell me more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with the project this year? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm thrilled to be a part of this fellowship this year. I'm working on a book about uh, how climate change will force a migration around the world, but also around the United States. And it's a development uh, that comes out of a series of, of articles that I wrote for the New York Times Magazine in 2020 about that phenomenon globally, but the book uh, dives much more deeply regionally into how specific climate threats and perils will affect specific communities across the United States and is essentially offering the thesis that the country will eventually look entirely different demographically from how it looks today. So the book is exploring you know, how to prepare for that movement and that change and what that change will mean for the culture of the country and the physical geography and, and demography of the United States. So it's my sense that a lot of conversations focus on climate change tend to focus more specifically on the environmental conditions like melting glaciers or rising sea levels, and less so on issues related to the people, whether it's regards to poverty, social inequality, or political instability. And it sounds like your book is going to focus a bit more on that. So can you talk more about how your book will hopefully inform that discourse so that it's a bit more people-centered when it comes to talking about these issues related to climate change? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we always talk about uh, how our physical conditions are changing, how hot it's getting, how far the sea levels will rise. And we talk a whole lot less and the media focuses a whole lot less on how people experience that change. And that is exactly the, the focus of this project. It begins with this question of how do individual people make a decision uh, about changing their own lives, about when to, to move, when to migrate, uh, you know, which is really exploring kind of this like emotional and psychological uh, threshold wherever it is uh, for individual people about, you know, what's enough in terms of the change or the depression or the, you know, the interference in their lives from wildfire smoke or the interference uh, brought by persistent flooding. And how do people cope with that? And what's the decision that they make in response to it? And, you know, so while my thesis is that many people, uh, not all, will decide to move or relocate and essentially try to escape from the worst of, of those impacts. At its heart, it's really uh, also an exploration of just how do, how do people live with climate change? How will Americans live with climate change? And, you know, and I think that that's a that's a unique and and new approach that um, you know that I've found so far that a lot of people who read the work that I've done, you know, identify with and are are curious, uh, you know, to go into greater depth about, and uh, and the book will aim to to answer. I know you're deeply in the reporting process now, and so it's a question I know writers don't love to answer, so I would totally understand if you don't want to answer this, but as you think about the narrative and what's driving it and the structure, how are you hoping to tell this story in a way that's compelling? 
the book will move through an explanation of the risks in a level of detail that I don't think has been previously disclosed uh, using um, extraordinary data that I've been able to collect through the course of my reporting. We'll move through kind of disclosure of what those risks are into a section that really describes how those risks will affect people and a section that explores uh, how I think uh, or how the experts that I'm speaking with uh, anticipate that people will respond to and and move in response. And that's sort of the basic structural theme. And it's, um, you know, it's not as narratively driven as, uh, you know, many of the projects that I've undertaken. It's really driven by uh, an incredible collection of, uh, of facts and data and analysis of, of the scientific literature that's out there. Um, that I think is really, you know, a a unique uh, collection and and all-encompassing view. Yeah, it's always a tricky question. So So one of the focal points of your project will be around exploring human migration as a result of climate change, as you mentioned earlier. So can you give me a brief overview of how global warming impacts migration patterns, Um, you know, especially for someone who's not familiar with this topic and the way that you are? It's such a complicated question, Um, but it begins with the premise that, uh, you know, humans on the planet have always lived in a relatively narrow uh, band of environmental conditions. And there's new research that uh, describes and defines that band and essentially describes the conditions that people lived in for the past 6,000 years and looks at how those conditions are changing. And uh, what it finds is that about a fifth of the planet will uh, eventually be outside, uh, will fall outside of those optimal conditions. And that suggests uh, that people in those regions will have to make that difficult decision uh, about what to do in response, about whether to move or whether to change the way they live in the, in the places that they live. We know from an enormous amount of research that, uh, you know, extraordinarily harsh conditions, disasters, for example, hurricanes, floods, but also just slow onset changes like rising heat displace people. There's patterns around the world from North Africa to South Asia uh, that show us, you know, that that people flee, migrate these conditions that in the face of these conditions that people combine environmental influences with other aspirational influences like seeking better economic circumstances or uh, safety from persecution and use environmental change as an instigating factor in in deciding to go and move uh, often across borders uh, and around the world. So the real question is you know, what's the scale of that change going to be and, and when will it happen over what, what time frame? In the course of my reporting, I've attempted to model that in some places, uh, developed a model that would forecast this kind of change uh, from Central America towards the United States to try to understand, you know, more specifically how environmental changes lead to exactly what scale of, of population change you know, and to just sort of summarize, uh, you know, it briefly, it suggests that, you know, in that example, tens of millions of people will move directly in response uh, to the changing climate towards the United States. There's a number of other studies my reporting includes that suggest the number in the, in the United States, the number of people within the United States that will move um, will be at least in the tens of millions, if not uh, well over 100 million. So uh, what happens next is, uh, you know, is my effort to just uh, to try to map where that change is likely to happen first and to try to uh, portray where I think the largest number of people will ultimately go. So when you consider a migration at that scale, what does the window for opportunity look like for countries around the globe in terms of preparing for these changes? I think like 
all things climate, it's a, it's a gradual, not a point specific change. So we have, you know, a diminishing opportunity that starts now, but continues infinitely, um, you know, to address and, and prepare for that change. Uh, you know, and that, that opportunity is, uh, is twofold. Uh, you know, on one hand, it is more urgent, uh, and more relevant than ever to curb global emissions, um, uh, because, Climate change itself is not a you know a completely determined um, phenomenon in the sense that uh, it'll continue to get worse as emissions continue to get worse, and the the degree to which we curb emissions now will lessen the long term impact, and so you know in theory then will lessen the you know the ultimate number of migrants that we're talking about. So curbing emissions is one immediate course of action, and then the other uh, is to prepare and adapt and make your community or make your country or make your government as resilient as possible um, in the face of this change. And so you have both the environmental change to cope with, but also the change in population. And this challenge is different uh, in different places around the world. Uh, you know, it's it's one sort of challenge in North Africa where you have, uh, you know, extremely impoverished communities and very, very large populations that are rapidly moving into newly urbanized areas. And there's there's a sort of chaos that goes along with that. And it's going to be more modest in places like the United States where relative to North Africa, we're extraordinarily wealthy, um, but still have our many inequities and, uh, you know, and economic disparities across this country. And so when you look at tens or hundreds of million people moving, it's still going to be towards urban areas uh, and more northern areas. And so the conversation turns to, you know, what kind of good governance and preparation and investment in everything from infrastructure, sewage and water treatment systems, uh, to public transit systems uh, will aid that transition happening smoothly, and even how to create enough jobs in a robust enough economy in those destination places uh, to support those communities. And the goal in doing both of those things is to minimize unrest, essentially, is, you know, that the happier and the more stable societies are, uh, the, the uh, you know, the less likely there is to be conflict. Are governments beginning to take this threat seriously? And if so, who would you list as examples of really the the ones at the top of that list? So to me, that question goes hand in hand with the question of are they taking climate change itself seriously? And we're at or just past, you know, a bit of a fulcrum point, I think, where that where the answer is yes, finally, but it's decades delayed. Uh, We've all been slow, uh, you know, to varying degrees, but the United States responsible for disproportionate amounts of of the change that we're all uh, experiencing has been, you know, among the slowest. So I think we're finally coming around to it and coming around to the to the understanding that migration is also driven by climate, whether that migration is, you know, out of Syria in the civil war that was spurred in part by drought and into Europe or the kind of migration that we're seeing from Central America into the United States or the kind of migration that we're beginning to see within the United States, um, both, you know, as an example in a COVID year, but also uh, increasingly, you know, from wildfires in the West and hurricanes in the Southeast and so forth. And, um, you know, you see that in uh, specific actions that the Biden administration is beginning to take now. The Biden administration issued an executive order in its first week in office uh, looking for an analysis and evaluation of of these um, these issues of specifically how climate was affecting migration and what measures might curb that migration or make the country more resilient to it. That's the start of a slow and bureaucratic process. There's not an extraordinary amount of meaningful action in response to it yet, but it's a recognition that um, these things matter and that they're going to be in priorities going forward. And so 
you know, I think that that's the start of, you know, what I, I think will be a global trend of, of uh, governments increasingly realizing that their migration, and their population movements are integrally tied to their economics and to uh, climate change. So you have a long history of reporting on this topic um, with ProPublica. You were there for several years. And I'm curious about coverage around environmental issues and what's changed over the to- over time. Um, and how has your reporting also changed in response to to shifts around around this? Yeah. So I mean, I've been reporting on the environment since 2002 and at ProPublica since 2008. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's moved from being sort of a, a quixotic venture uh, to uh, something that's now, you know, as of this week, you know, quite mainstream and even dominant, uh, you know, in the, in the media landscape. And that's overdue and, and very, very welcome. Um, you know, my own work has only in the last couple of years shifted to explicit focus on climate change, even though, you know, all of the issues have always been intertwined. So, you know, moving from looking at uh, subsidies for and production by the oil and gas industry to water scarcity in the West and, you know, and now to, you know, to climate and renewable energy policies and, uh, you know, and migration, which we're talking about. It's been interesting to see, you know, even just, I think, in the last, like, you know, 48 months, um, you know, a shift in the consciousness around climate change being real, climate change being something not to debate or approach as a, you know, as a political uh, controversy, but uh, as an actual physical threat that we need to contend with. And I think that's reached, you know, that's been a slow, steady transition that's culminated probably where we are now, which is a bit of a frantic fever pitch as we we're, we the media I think are looking at every single uh, disaster and there are many of them uh, you know through the lens of of climate change um, but all with a um, you know a bit of a fear based mentality and I think that that's you know one of the stages of kind of acceptance of of the scale of change that we're facing and I I think that we'll move uh, you know we as a professional move through that into um, you know a much more analytical and sort of steady paced uh, rate of coverage um, into the future starting really soon. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to this to some degree in your response, but, you know, over the past few years, it seems as though climate policy conversations tend to be partisan. And why do you think global warming and environmental issues are considered nonpartisan or why are they not considered nonpartisan? And I guess what impacts then does that have on attempts to really solve this crisis? And the risk is that my answer sounds partisan, but it baffles me that uh, that this issue is not seen as a nonpartisan issue. Uh, it used to be seen as a nonpartisan issue and not that far back. I mean, um, you know, 2010, 2001, the mid-1990s, the hearings, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill were generally, you know, bipartisan uh, in approach and the kind of solutions that we we're talking about were, were um, moderate and bipartisan in approach. And that's, you know, that's shifted with a lot of other aspects of our political discourse that I uh, find, frankly, inexplicable. Uh, So, you know, I don't know. Part of it certainly is, you know, is a sort of branding of the problem. Um, You know, I think for a long time, it was, uh, you know, too easy to see concern over climate change as, uh, you know, as a sort of tree hugger concern of of the left that was, uh, you know, affecting only in subtle ways, a very small number of people. 
Um, and that's increasingly, you know, untrue uh, now. And, and the second is, uh, you know, due to the influence of, of big business. And that's sort of where my reporting on the environment started, uh, you know, again, back to the oil industry, but it, you know, it, it can't be overstated the degree to which, uh, you know, the oil industry in particular, but also just, um, you know, big business uh, uh, in the United States and in the West in general has um, really worked hard, deliberately and specifically and with an enormous, you know, war chest of funding to, uh, you know, to shape the view that climate change is a political issue and not, uh, you know, a general issue that affects everyone um, equally, uh, you know, and to tamp down the kind of policy changes that would help the world adapt, uh, but which would be expensive for those specific businesses. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that that that's just uh, over a long period of time, uh, that steady trickle, that influence has really shaped the uh, the debate and the dynamic in a way that's hard to unwind now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, domestically, it's one conversation, but on the international stage, it's a different conversation. And so I'm curious about some of the challenges when it comes to the international response to climate change. Is it harder? Is it easier? Does the conversation shift? Um, I guess, what are the priorities um, and how are they different from what the conversation is in terms of what's focused here domestically? It's so complex and and so wide ranging, um, but I think the general difficulties boil down to a question of who's responsible for the change that we're already promised to endure, and who has to bear the brunt of uh, the action to curb that change going forward. And it's not an equal playing field. So uh, you know, the West and the United States in particular, but um, but Europe and every developed country has you know, reaped the benefits that we enjoy now in terms of the wealth of our societies explicitly and measurably at the expense of of the climate. We've emitted the carbon dioxide that's forcing the world to warm. And so when you look at this in terms of global cooperation, you have, you know, emerging economies and economies that have yet to emerge that have aspirations to have a better quality of life, which we already have here, and the cost of which will be more emissions, which will make the climate worse. And so when you, you know, get global leaders into a room and you say, you know, do we all agree we want to stop global warming? It's kind of easy for all who acknowledge that it's happening to agree that the answer is yes. But when you ask the question of who's willing to sacrifice then their economic growth and the improvement in their, you know, in their standard of living nationally, it's a much more complicated question and, and you get wavering commitments from, you know, from dozens of countries around the world. So that's been kind of the sticking point for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. And it's not clear that that is able even to fully shift yet now, though, you know, there's a finally a rising sense of urgency. And so, you know, so now there's a lot of leadership from European countries and from the EU uh, in terms of progressive policy, in terms of aggressive uh, shifts, you know, in the vehicles that they drive and rely on and their energy and electricity production, that's a real positive step. Uh, you know, they're leagues ahead of the United States and, and many more leagues ahead of, you know, emerging economies of, of China and India. You know, the risk on the other end is that, uh, you know, China, though it has pledged long-term, you know, changes in response to climate change, uh, in the short term is still, you uh, trying to grow its economy and produce more energy to do it and uh, is adding new coal plants, which is really about the worst thing you can do at a rate that, uh, you know, risks overlapping all of the progressive uh, improvements that the rest of the world can make, you know, together. Uh, so that's a really sort of demoralizing prospect. 
And what that means for true global cooperation, I don't know. Uh, we'll know a lot more this fall. The next uh, global climate meeting is happening in Glasgow, and it's kind of a critical moment uh, to see you know, how much uh, countries are willing to come together and what, uh, you know, specific commitments they might finally be willing to make. So I noticed in your application, I think you studied anthropology uh, in college. And so as you're kind of exploring these broader narratives around climate change, how, if at all, do you pull on that degree? Uh, How does it inform your career as a journalist today and the stories that you tell? I love that question. Thank you. You know, I, uh, I often talk about uh, anthropology as sort of the original form of documentary journalism. And so it's not so much I think it informs, you know, the work I do, except uh, but that it is, you know, more or less the work uh, that I do. It piques my curiosity in in people and cultures and individual behavior and, you know, in understanding how uh, at both the individual and the organizational level um, decisions are made and customs are followed uh, and and also to respect the differences in those decisions uh, in different places, whether that's Georgia to New York or Nepal to, uh, you know, to Germany. And uh, I mean, that's just a fundamental uh, approach to, I think, good reporting as well. Uh, the sort of goal towards object objectivity that comes with, you know, uh, having respect for multiple, um, you know, points of view, uh, and the patience to, um, you know, to learn and observe uh, and and watch how people talk, what they say, listen to what they say, listen carefully. Um, I mean, those are sort of the, you know, core tenets of cultural anthropology, which is what I studied, and that's what uh, any good reporter should do too. So as you embark on your fellowship project this year, where do you hope to be a year from now with it? A year from now, I hope that I'm finishing my manuscript of, of this book and uh, am working through final edits and fact-checking it, making sure that it's accurate. And uh, you know that's a big pragmatic hurdle uh, that I need to get past in terms of actual work and words on the page. And as soon as that can happen, um, you know, there's a sense with this work that the book and the things that I've described are sort of the beginning of a process, not the not the end. So, you know, I'm eager for the conversation that that comes next, uh, which, you know, is both talking about the book and talking about the ideas in the book, which I hope that, uh, you know, I'll be able to do through the fellowship and that the fellowship can support. Um, but also the, you know, the work that evolves from it, um, because, you know, every day of research and writing um, that goes by is, uh, you know, is a a day of uh, learning and thinking a lot more about um, all of these changes uh, in ways that can't fit into the book and will will guide, you know, the work that comes next. So um, I don't know exactly what the, you know, the next big uh, project is that, that comes after this, but, uh, but I expect that it'll be kind of obvious by uh, the time I do finish, you know, this book and, and uh, you know, I'm in the heart of this fellowship, you know, a year from now. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see this project take shape. Uh, thank you for your time today, Abram. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.